I want to ask a question and try to answer it. What happened to Jesus when he died on the cross? What really happened to Jesus when he died on the cross? Mark chapter 15, verse 37 refers to Jesus when he breathed his last. Imagine this, Jesus, Son of God, who was man as though he were not God, he was God as though he were not man, he breathed his last, he died. It's a reminder that you and I one day will breathe our last breath. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Spirit to rest upon every mind of those watching right now in order that their perception, what I say will be received as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument to convey all that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. I pray that this will be a life-changing word and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, these words, Mark chapter 15, verse 37, when Jesus breathed his last, these words describe the end of the most painful suffering of any human being in the history of the world. Now, it's a reminder that we're all going to die. I'm going to die. You're going to die. It's our hope that we could die without pain. Some die in agony. Some die in their sleep. Some are taken quickly. Uh, we all would like to die without any pain. It's not possible for us to know which was greater for Jesus, his physical suffering, which includes the emotional and bodily torture he endured, or the spiritual suffering, when he was taken by surprise uh, over the Father's rejection of him. Because at some point on Good Friday, sometime between 12 o'clock noon and 3 o'clock, uh, something happened. It took Jesus by surprise. God appeared to turn his back on Jesus. And over the Father's rejection, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark chapter 15, verse 34. Well, I want you to know that these words also describe the greatest joy of any human being in the history of the world. And I can tell you why. Because the joy consisted of the inexpressible relief from his suffering, but also the indescribable ecstasy of seeing his father at any moment. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2, refers to the joy that was set before Jesus. In other words, what enabled him to do what he did? What enabled him to go through Gethsemane when he cried out, Lord, if possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And how could he endure all that pain? I can tell you partly this. Looking forward to that joy was partly what kept him going, giving him the determined will not to give up before the ordeal 
was truly over. Question, what kind of pain did Jesus endure? Well, four things I want to say today. Number one, loneliness. Now, Jesus attracted vast audiences, but, you know, it was a vacillating following. At one time, according to John chapter 6, verse 15, 5,000 wanted to make him king. But the result happened was that when he kept teaching, by the end of his sermon, it resulted in the whole lot deserting him. You see, at the end of that sermon, John chapter 6, in that sixth chapter of John, you have what some would call the hard sayings of Jesus. At the beginning, 5,000 following him, and, you know, he could have quit right there and let them make him king. That's what they wanted to do. He wouldn't let them. He kept on teaching. It goes to show that they were following Jesus uh, because they got a free meal ticket, because he fed 5,000 with loaves and fish. It was one of his miracles, so everybody wanted to hang around. Uh, they had a good thing going, following Jesus. You won't have to work. You don't have to worry about eating. He'll just feed you. But no, that's not what Jesus came to do, and he kept teaching. And as he taught, one by one, people say, I don't think I like this. And they all deserted him. And by the end of John chapter 6, only the 12 disciples stood by him at that time. You read it, John 6, verses 66 to 69. And then of those 12 that stayed behind, Jesus had his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. So he took them with him on special occasions, those three, Peter, James, and John. I referred to Gethsemane. When he was in Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John were with him. Uh, on one occasion, when he raised someone from the dead, only Peter and James and John saw it. On the Mount of Transfiguration, only Peter, James, and John saw it. And so Jesus knew in advance that he would suffer death by his crucifixion, or by the crucifixion that I'll be describing today. And he told it to his disciples, but Peter, James, and John were told more than the rest. You see, Jesus also knew that fulfilling the law, which no one had ever done, but which he promised to do, he did so in Matthew 5, 17. This, near the beginning of the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made what has been regarded by many people, Bible scholars, theologians, the most stupendous statement Jesus ever made. It's John 5, sorry, Matthew 5, 17. I have come to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. I have come to fulfill the law. That's an extraordinary statement. Nobody had ever done that before. We're talking about the Ten Commandments, uh, the moral law. We're talking about the civil law, the way the people of Israel should govern themselves, the ceremonial law, 2,000 pieces of mosaic legislation, and nobody had ever fulfilled the law. And now here's Jesus who said, I have come to fulfill the law. Well, he knew that fulfilling the law, which no one had ever done, also meant being God's sacrificial lamb. And that's what Jesus was when he died. You know, in John 4.34, Jesus spoke of finishing the work that the Father sent him to do. 
And as the time of his horrible death drew closer, he said, John chapter 12, verse 28, for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Never think for a moment that Jesus' death on the cross was a sudden accident that caught him by surprise. Listen, he knew why he had come. And he knew, therefore, that his hardest days were at hand. For one thing, one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot became demon-possessed. We're told that the devil entered Judas, and Judas betrayed Jesus. One of the 12 was his betrayal. And then Jesus said, my soul is very sorrowful. And he confided this to that inner circle, Peter, James, and John. It shows his emotional pain. And he said to Peter, James, and John, remain here and watch with me. Here's why. Jesus, as a man, he did not wish to go through loneliness in this dark hour. You know, but they fell asleep. His closest, the, the inner circle, they fell asleep. And so he said to Peter, could you not watch with me for one hour? And then we're told, according to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, that when he went back and prayed in Gethsemane, it was loud cries, loud cries and tears in Gethsemane. And they were directed to the Father who could save him from death. And to let you know that Jesus did not look forward to the cross, but he was totally devoted to the Father's will. So succumbing to the fear of man or avoiding the Father's will to avoid suffering, out of the question. He knew what he would have to do. However, he did pray that if at all possible, he might be somehow spared of the ordeal that had been destined for him. And so he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, the cup referring to his going to the cross, but then he added, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, as I said, the cup referred to the cross. And I wonder if I'm talking to anybody at this moment, you're going through an ordeal and it might get worse and you are praying that you might avoid it. But I can tell you this, you must have this in common with Jesus that you say, not my will, but yours be done. Whoever you are, whatever you're going through or whatever you are dreading, Remember that Jesus said, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass. And you might pray that right now. Uh, you're dreading the outcome of an examination. You're dreading what's going to be like on the job. Or you're dreading an illness. Or I could go on and on. And you say, Father, if you're willing, let this pass. You don't want to go through it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's not that Jesus welcomed this. Oh, he didn't welcome it. He dreaded it. In fact, we're told that his agony brought sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. 
the agony. Nobody's ever gone through anything like that. Well, here's what you ought to know. He tried once, then twice, to get his inner circle to be there for him. But you know what? They kept falling asleep. They kept falling asleep. I'm convinced that Jesus, knowing he was going to go to the cross, had one hope, however. It would have been a consolation that his inner circle, they'd been with him when he, when he raised somebody from the dead. They were with him at the Mount of Transfiguration. The inner circle, at least they would go with him all the way to the cross. But then they kept falling asleep. And after a third time, Jesus pleading with them to stay awake, he gave up. And you know, it says in Matthew's Gospel, the King James Version, these words grip me, sleep on now. He concluded that not even one, not even one of his disciples would be around to comfort him. Sleep on now. How would you feel if Jesus just said to you, sleep on because you're not going to listen to my call. So any hope that one of them would go to the cross with him, he now knew he was gone. He was going to have to suffer it all alone. And perhaps you are in a very dark hour right now, and you would just like to find a friend, somebody who will know what you're going through. It helps if there's just one other person who can feel what you feel. I don't say it'll take all the pain away, but just to have one friend. Well, you need to know, in case you don't have another friend, that was Jesus. He had nobody. He had nobody. They all, they all betrayed him. Not betrayed, they, they forsook him. Judas betrayed him. I'm going to mention Judas in just a second. I just want to say that he hoped at least the three would be with him. And when he gave up, that even they would not be with him. His last words to them, sleep on now. Well, moments later then, because of the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, Jesus was arrested by the Jewish authorities. Well, now Peter, <laughs> he, I guess he's trying to make up for the embarrassment uh, of being asleep when Jesus wanted him. Uh, he tried to prove this, this Peter uh, earlier, that he was the most faithful of all the disciples. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Peter really thought he loved Jesus more than any of the 12. But you know what? He even denied knowing Jesus. You read it in John chapter 18. In fact, Matthew 26, 56 says, all of his disciples forsook him and fled. Well, the loneliness was now intensified beyond all expectation. So as I said earlier, and I read from uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 34, that even his father turned about him, turned his back on him. And that's when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What an awful thing. The first thing about what happened to Jesus on the day he died, loneliness. Are you lonely? Years ago, I was minister of Westminster Chapel in London. 
one of the high watermarks of my ministry in London was having Billy Graham preach for me. It was a great honor. His sermon that night was on loneliness. I will never forget it. And the high watermark of that sermon, if I may put it that way, what everybody remembers, he says, when you die, you will die alone. You may have people around you, but you'll die alone. Well, Jesus has understood that. That's why he can be touched with the feeling of your weaknesses. He knew what loneliness was. Another thing I want you to see about what happened to Jesus when he was on the cross, silence. Hmm. We read in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You know, James chapter 3, verse 2 says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, but none of us is perfect. You see, one of the proofs that Jesus was perfect, that is, without sin, was his self-control with words. Indeed, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Well, Proverbs 16.32 says, He who rules his spirit is better than the one who takes a city. Well, we know that Jesus was tempted. The Greek word means tested. He was tested just like you and I are at every point and yet without sin. So remember this about Jesus. He never sinned. One way we show we don't sin is we don't make any comments that we're going to regret. Let me put it this way. One unguarded comment or any retort that showed that those around the cross succeeded in needling him would have made Jesus sin. It would have been a sin. You see, those around the cross, the soldiers, the priests, and they scoffed and said, he saved others, he can't save himself. Hey, son of God, come down from the cross so we can see and believe. You see, they hoped that Jesus would lose control of his spirit. And as a consequence of their mocking him, blindfolding him, beating him, and demanding that he answer them, they said, who's that that struck you? They blindfolded him and hit him and said, hey, which one did it? They were doing everything they could to needle him, to rile him, get him to retort. Uh, if they had done that, it would mean that Jesus could not be our perfect substitute or sacrifice. So anything uh, or any word that might cause Jesus to lose his temper was hurled at him. Well, you might be interested to know that years later, the Apostle Paul Great man, wonderful man, my hero. But a lot of people don't want to believe that even Paul could make a mistake. I can tell you he did. Did you know that the Apostle Paul lost his temper years later when he called the high priest a whitewashed wall? You see, even Paul, he wasn't perfect. And the best friend you'll ever have is not perfect. The greatest saint you've ever heard of was not perfect. But Jesus never sinned, ever. He never lost his temper. 
He never grieved the Holy Spirit by an angry word. Well, King Herod hoped to see Jesus perform a miracle. And uh, when uh, Herod knew that Jesus was going to come to him, he thought, oh, good, I've been hearing about this Jesus. Maybe he'll perform some miracle for me, like pulling a rabbit out of the hat or something like that. And so Herod, hoping that Jesus would perform a miracle, kept asking him questions. Jesus made no answer. Jesus was, in fact, tempted to sin right to the end by what he would say. You know, Satan molded everybody, from Herod to Pilate, from the priests to the Roman soldiers, to catch Jesus with words. The chief priests, together with the scribes, the elders, mocked him, as I said. He, can't, he saved others. He can't save himself. Anything to get him to say something back. One time they said, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come on, come down from the cross. Come on, let's see it. Not a word. Let me point out something. Had Jesus given the true explanation of his words, when they said he was referring uh, to raising the, the temple in three days, it was in John chapter 2. This is what they did. Jesus said, I can destroy this temple and build it up in three days. And you would have thought they forgot it until they used it against him. They were hoping to rile him. And by the way, he didn't even bother to give the explanation. This is something that interests me. You know, he could have explained. He could have said, now, wait a minute, everybody. What I meant was the temple of my body would be raised up. He didn't even bother. You see, there were times when Jesus said things that appeared to be ridiculous to some, and he might have said, oh, please, so let me explain. He didn't bother. He didn't bother. Because had he explained, he would have sinned, because that would have been an attempt to clear his name or vindicate himself. Well, he would have sinned because that would have been an attempt to make himself look good. There's an interesting verse, 1 Timothy 3, 16. says that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. Had you ever thought about that? Interesting verse, that Jesus was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus' reply to all that was said to him and about him, not to mention what they did to him, was an utter, brilliant silence. So, as the Roman soldiers, who were the ones that nailed him to the cross? What happened to them? Jesus looked to heaven and said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Read it, Luke chapter 23, verse 34. By the way, do you ever wonder that prayer when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing? Was that a pretentious show, just to say, I'm praying for my enemies? Or was it a genuine prayer for them? I can answer that. It was a genuine prayer to God for them to be forgiven. You see, Jesus told us to pray for our enemy. And when we pray for our enemy, he meant us to pray that they will be blessed. Uh, 
one of my predecessors at Westminster Chapel many years ago. His name was G. Camel Morgan. And he actually said, this is a word from G. Camel Morgan, I expect to see in heaven the very man who nailed in the nails. In fact, uh, after Jesus died around the cross, uh, they said, uh, truly, this was the Son of God. Well, uh, Jesus lived in that silence, and uh, he was not allowed to explain to any way, uh, to anyone why he let the Jews arrest him. As it has been put, he could have called 10,000 angels, 10,000 angels, but he let them do what they did. He was not allowed to explain to anyone. And you know what? If only Jesus could have said something to Mary Magdalene. I wonder if you've ever thought of this. Mary Magdalene was one of his converts. Uh, he cast seven devils out of her. And Jesus was the only man that showed her respect. And uh, she followed him all the way to the cross. The disciples forsook him, but not Mary Magdalene. And one of his converts, Mary Magdalene, she is now a few feet away from the cross and no doubt perplexed, possibly even feeling betrayed because of what was happening to Jesus. And not only that, she was sobbing her heart out. And I've often thought part of Jesus' suffering was having to let her suffer and not explain to her why he was on the cross. You know, I've often thought that if Jesus could only be allowed to say, Mary, Mary, it's okay. I'm atoning for the sins of the world. This is all God's plan. He wasn't able, even able to tell her why. You see, part of his pain was feeling her pain and watching her grieve without his being allowed to comfort her or explaining things. Well, we're talking about what happened to Jesus. What was it like? He was alone. It was emotional pain, but now bodily pain. Do you realize the ancient Roman crucifixion is regarded as the worst kind of pain ever devised in the mind of human beings? It was intended to be a gruesome spectacle, the most painful and humiliating death imaginable. For example, the flesh could be ripped off by the whipping before they even started the crucifixion. This is the way it started. The nails, we're told, were five to seven inches long. Nails were driven into the wrists for extra pain in a way that caused severe bleeding and then perhaps no bleeding, but severe pain. Nails were driven into the ankles to extend the suffering the cross itself would continue to tear the skin off the victim's back. Gravity was the real executioner. The body hanging, we're told, was what actually killed the person. So exposure 
and dehydration would cause death if all else failed. So as the condemned continually pulled himself up to breathe and and then released in exhaustion, the person's back would rub up and down against the raw wood of the cross. The pain, we can't imagine. So what I'm saying here in a few minutes is just a little attempt in part to envisage what happened to Jesus on the cross. As one hymn put it, we may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. All right, there's a fourth thing. Why did Jesus die? What happened on Good Friday? It was the silence, the suffering, the emotional pain, the physical pain, but now we come to the ultimate main reason. It was punishment for sin. Well, I thought Jesus never sinned. You're exactly right. Jesus never sinned, and yet he's being punished for sin. You say, R.T., how can that be? I'll do my best to explain. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, we read, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, that literally took place on the day Jesus was crucified. Sometime between 12 o'clock noon and 3 o'clock, this happened. There was an exact moment when he who knew no sin, never having sinned even once, he who knew no sin became sin. And so what was going on on that Good Friday is what God intentionally did to his son, Jesus Christ. So God punished Jesus for what I did. He punished Jesus for what you did. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Surprising as it may seem, it even took Jesus by surprise. That's when Jesus cried out. He wasn't expecting this. This was not on the agenda as far as he knew. He knew it was going to be awful. He knew it was going to be bad. But then he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, he, he knew undergoing crucifixion would be hard. He knew it would be painful. It was what he dreaded most when he was agonizing in Gethsemane with those loud cries and tears. But he was not expecting this for his own father to turn his back on him. And you might be interested to know that there's only one time ever that Jesus addressed his father as God. Only one. And that is when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, what was going on? It was retributive punishment. God getting even. You see, there are various kinds of judgment. Uh, one of the kinds of judgment is gracious judgment. That's what God showed to King David for his adultery and murder 
And God could have just got in with David. You know what? Nathan the prophet said, God has put away your sin, you will live. And so what David did by his adultery and his murder, God stepped in and judged, but it was gracious judgment. But now on Good Friday, God Almighty, the most holy God, venting his anger towards sin by putting our sin on Jesus and then punishing him for what we did, for our sin. Yes, that is what happened to Jesus on the cross. God punished Jesus for what you and I did. You'd say, R.T., that's not fair. Agreed. It wasn't fair. Jesus did not deserve it. As I've been saying, he's the only human being in the history of the world who never sinned. They tried to get him to sin. He never sinned. And what was the thanks he got for not sinning and perfectly doing the Father's will and fulfilling the law? What did he get for that? Punishment. It wasn't fair. You see, this explains Jesus' pathos and bewilderment for being abandoned by the Father on the cross. We're told, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, you and I, might become the righteousness of God in him, righteous in God's sight. So it was not fair. It was not fair, but it was pure justice. This is why we have the Bible in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, it took two things to satisfy God's justice. Two things, Jesus' sinless life and the shedding of his precious blood. The reason that God can be merciful and just at the same time is because Jesus satisfied the justice and wrath of God. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. He can now be merciful to you and to me. You know, at the end of the day, perhaps no one should attempt to grasp fully how awful his spiritual suffering actually was. God's direct punishment on Jesus. Was it worse than the physical pain? Almost certainly, but we will never know until we get to heaven. Why did Jesus die? To pay our debt to God, yours and mine. You might like to know his last words were, it is finished. It is finished is the English translation of the Greek word tetelestai. His words, when he breathed his last. Tetelestai was also a colloquial expression in the ancient marketplace that meant paid in full. So Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, it's so easy to forget this because the purpose of Jesus' death was not to bring perfect conditions on earth, whether by way of politics or the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of Jesus' death 
was to make us fit for heaven. So never forget that we get to heaven only by faith in Jesus' blood, not by our works, but only by what Jesus did for us on the cross. As one of my favorite hymns put it, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Heavenly Father, I ask you to take this, my prayer, apply it to those who need it. Grant that someone at this moment will just say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit. I give you my life. Grant that someone prayed that prayer in these moments. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this message. And be sure to subscribe so you can receive new messages each week. Visit tsc.nyc for all the latest info on how you can stay connected. Also, don't forget that you can follow us on social media on all major platforms at Times Square Church. Thanks for tuning in today. Have a great week.